Recent releases by the American military and some politicians say that UFOs, or rather UAPs as they prefer to call them now, since they poisoned the term UFOs, are real and a, quote, potential national security threat. That's because their nature and motivations, if there are any, are totally unknown. Yes, they may be a security threat, but they also may just have a kick-ass flourless cake recipe. But the military says that because one of the possibilities is danger, Will Robinson, we should act as if that word potential isn't there. UAPs are a mystery, and human beings really don't like mysteries. Is there any past evidence that they are sometimes hostile or dangerous? There have been past encounters with them that have been dubbed, quote, battles or dogfights, and a few incidents that might be indicative of some kind of intent to harm. No, not the supposed they abducted me and put things up my butt reports, which would hardly constitute a national security threat, but other, less well-known close encounters of the suspect kind or at least encounters that we interpret as maybe not so friendly, though that might say more about us than any glowing orbs flying around in the sky. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Red, Red alert! alert. UFOs, UFOs as, as threat. threat. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast, and I wish you would. And if you like what we're doing, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Close call! We've already talked about the Mantell UFO incident that resulted in the death of a pilot and what's known as the Gorman UFO dogfight, both of which happened in 1948. But Captain Thomas F. Mantell Jr. was chasing a UFO, went too high, passed out from lack of oxygen, and then his plane crashed in a field, killing him. While George Gorman was also chasing a mysterious blinking light in the skies over Fargo, North Dakota, and when he tried to cut across his flight path, it rushed directly at his plane, veering off at the very last second. This happened five times and was called a dogfight, quote-unquote, though no weapons were engaged at all. In the first instance, the UFO did nothing except run away at very high speed, and in the second case, could also have been interpreted more akin to like a game of tag, minus the actual touching. We've also talked about the Child's Witted incident, also happened in 1948, which uh, seemed like a near miss between a commercial plane and a UFO, and there have been other near misses as well. 
On February 10, 1951, a U.S. Navy plane was headed to Gander, Newfoundland from Iceland when a large orange circle of light almost hit it. The light circle veered off at the last moment and, according to a report, quote, literally almost flew circles around the Navy plane. On October 14, 1954, Royal Auxiliary Air Force pilot James Salandon was flying a Gloucester Meteor F-8, which was an RAF plane, out of the Northfield Airfield, about 14 miles northeast of London, heading east. As he got over Southend-on-Sea at the mouth of the Thames estuary about 4.30 p.m., two circular objects, one silver and one gold, approached his craft at high speed. As a collision with the silver one seemed imminent, it suddenly rapidly changed direction, missing the airplane. And then, of course, there's the Manises UFO incident, the most famous case of its kind from Spain. On November 11th, 1979, flight JK-297 was heading to Las Palmas in the Canary Islands from Salzburg, Austria. After a short refueling stop in Mallorca, the flight crew noticed red lights approaching them at high speed when they were back in the air. This was about 11 p.m. Worried that there could be some kind of mid-air collision, the plane changed altitude, but the lights also adjusted, once again on a direct course for the jet airliner. Whoever was flying this thing was certainly in violation of a number of safety regulations and potentially putting the crew plus their 109 passengers in danger. So pilot Francisco Javier Lero de Tejada decided to make an emergency landing at Manises Airport near Valencia. The lights followed them on their descent, cutting away just before the plane touched down. This was the first time in aviation history a commercial flight had to make an emergency landing because of a UFO. Three new objects then appeared in the night sky about 200 meters across each. They zipped down near the runway and airport staff switched on the emergency landing lights in case it was an aircraft in distress. All attempts to contact the supposed aircraft failed and many people claimed to have seen these things with their own eyes. A Mirage F-1 jet fighter was dispatched from Los Llanos Air Base, about 180 kilometers southwest. Air Force Captain Fernando Camara saw the lights were traveling at high speed, so he increased his own speed to Mach 1.4 just to get in close enough to be able to see something with the naked eye. He reported he saw a bright sort of cone with the tip chopped off that was changing colors. As he got closer, it accelerated and vanished from sight. Radar picked it back up near Valencia, so he headed back that way, once again seeing the cone. And once again, it sped up and disappeared, but his fighter jet systems jammed and his alert system indicated that there was a target lock on his plane. He continued on just the same, seeing it a third time before it took off for good, this time heading south. News of the incident spread, and in September 1980, the Spanish Parliament demanded an explanation. The official story was that it was a number of coincidental optical illusions. Captain Camara thought maybe he'd mistaken lights from a chemical factory about 100 miles away for a craft in the sky. The equipment failure, which was not made public until much later, was explained as a result of U.S. military presence in the area that was conducting electronic warfare to aid the 6th Fleet, which was nearby as they were preparing for a worst-case scenario in resolving the Iran hostage crisis, which had kicked off back on November 4th, one week before this incident. 
None of this, however, explains the fact that these mysterious objects also appeared on radar, and most people, politicians, aviation experts, and the public tend not to believe these explanations. However, 20 years later, the Anomaly Foundation, a Spanish nonprofit that looks into UFO reports, reviewed a 200-page report by Fernandez Perez that reinforced the chemical plant explanation combined with a panic attack on the part of Francisco Javier Lerdo de Tajada, the pilot of flight JK-297. Air Force Captain Camara was similarly confused by the lights from the factory, the equipment interference was because of the U.S. Navy Sixth Fleet helicopter carrier Iwo Jima, who was deploying electronic countermeasures at the time. The Anomaly Foundation found the report thorough and credible and said that this was the final word on the subject of the mysterious Manises UFO incident. So, these things might pose a danger in the air because they behave so strangely and to us unpredictably. And unpredictable is not a good word in the context of air traffic. And as that equipment failure shows, sometimes their proximity seems to make things stop working altogether. Things, things fall, fall apart. apart. In early November 1957, several people saw strange flashes of blue light, a glowing red light, a rocket-shaped object, and an egg-shaped object, accompanied by their car engines temporarily dying. All told, 15 separate UFO reports came in the evening of November 2, 1957 from the area around Leveland, Texas. And while Project Blue Book dismissed most of them as unreliable because the witnesses did not have much education, snobs, the Leveland UFO case is considered by many UFO folk to be one of the most important sighting clusters ever. The official report from Blue Book, after they were done denigrating the locals, was that it was ball lightning. However, there are many who dispute that. Early in the morning of September 19, 1976, radar operators in Tehran, Iran, picked up unusual traces. An F-4 Phantom II interceptor was sent to investigate. But when the jet reached the area, all the navigation and communications equipment on board failed, only coming back into operation once the plane had landed. A second F-4 was sent up, but just after that, the pilot got a radar lock and his communications went down. He did, however, see an object quite large, about 42 meters across, but then a smaller round object came out of it, traveling at high speed. The pilot thought it was a missile, so he tried to fire an infrared-guided missile of his own to intercept it, but that equipment, too, failed. The smaller object dove towards the ground, slowing and eventually seeming to land gently. Once that pilot was well away from the object, his equipment all returned to normal function. It would also turn out that a commercial jet nearby at the same time also had their radio stop working for a short while. A number of non-UAP explanations have been offered for the 1976 Tehran UFO incident, including chronic equipment failure in the F-4s, pilots seeing Jupiter, and a meteor shower. Also, though an initial search of the area where the smaller object supposedly landed showed nothing, but later they found a beeping transponder from a Lockheed C-141 Starlifter. This was an American transport plane that had been having problems with air turbulence causing their transponders to spontaneously eject. So maybe that was the explanation for that part of it. 
Some reported incidents involve scorching or burning. For about three weeks, starting in late March 1995, many UFOs were spotted in the skies over South Africa. In one incident, many people in the town of Lindley reported that their digital watches all stopped when an unknown object flew by overhead. In another incident, a farmer near the town of Coligny said that a craft of some sort had landed on the road, blocking it for about three minutes. During this time period, the farmer's truck engine stalled, and when he got out of his vehicle, an invisible force pinned him to the ground. Once the object flew off, the ground it had sat on was extremely hot. There are a number of stories of UFOs landing somewhere and leaving some kind of scorched patch on the ground. And there are cases of people being affected, not just equipment or plants. And sometimes the people actually get hurt. Mom, I got a owie. In 1950, Italian worker Bruno Faccini took a break during his late-night shift in the city of Varese, about 60 kilometers northwest of Milan. He saw a bright greenish craft near the factory doors, circular in shape, with a ladder coming out of it. At the bottom of the ladder, there was a being of some sort, apparently welding. Then, more smaller creatures came out of another opening, and the ladder went back inside, as did most of the creatures. But then he heard a sound like a beehive, and it kind of freaked him out, so he started to run away. One of the creatures still left on the ground pointed something at him. There was a flash of light, and he was forcefully knocked down. The object then flew away. The next day, indentation marks were found where the craft had stood, as well as burn marks and pieces of a strange green metal. Later analysis would show this metal was 74% copper and 19% tin, with the remaining 7% a mixture of other metals all readily, easily found on Earth. In early November 1957, just two weeks after Brazilian farmer Antonio Villas Boas made one of the first alien abduction claims, this was talked about in a previous episode about early UFO abductions, two soldiers at a military fort near Sao Paulo saw an unknown object descending from the sky. All of the electricity in the fort suddenly went off, and as the object got nearer, the two men suffered moderate burns from an intense wave of heat that came off of it. In May 1967, Canadian industrial mechanic and amateur geologist Steve Mikulak went to Falcon Lake in southeast Manitoba, about 150 kilometers east of his home in Winnipeg, staying at a nearby motel. This was a favorite quartz hunting area for him, and while he was looking at some, he noticed a flock of geese suddenly take flight as if startled by something. He glanced up and saw two red glowing objects about 45 meters away hovering above the ground. They were, quote, cigarette-shaped things with humps in the middle, but then one landed on a flat, rocky area and changed into a saucer shape about 10.5 meters across, that's about 34 feet, and 4.5 meters or 15 feet high. The other object, still in its bulging cigarette shape, hovered for another few minutes and then flew off. The one that had landed and transformed just sat there, so for the next half hour, he also sat and sketched it and then he decided he would walk towards it. His first thought was that it was some kind of American aircraft of an experimental nature, but he could see no signs or flags or other identifying marks. It also had no seams as if it was just a single piece of material. 
and it kept changing. Sometimes it looked like red glass, sometimes it shifted to a gray hue, reminding McCulloch of hot steel cooling and heating, cooling and heating, and it gave off a faint golden glow, and it smelled a bit of sulfur. There was also a whirring sound coming from it that he interpreted as some kind of a fan, and warm air seemed to be coming from the object with a hissing sound. A brightly lit three-panel door opened and he could hear what sounded like indistinct voices, though human-sounding. Once again, thinking it had to be the Americans, he tried speaking with them, first in English, then in Polish, and then in a couple of other languages that he spoke, offering help if they were experiencing any problems with their unusual craft. The voices stopped talking abruptly. He put on his welding goggles and gloves, which he had in his toolkit with him for protection, and got even closer. Peering inside, he saw colorful flashing panels and light beams, but no people. The door slid shut, and he touched the side of the craft. It was so hot it melted the fingertips of his gloves. The saucer then rotated until a panel with holes in it was facing him. From these holes, extremely hot air shot out, hitting him in the chest, knocking him backwards, and setting his clothes on fire. As he was tearing off the burning rags, the object took to the air and whisked off. Heading back to his motel, he felt unwell, nauseous, and finally throwing up several times. The local doctor was away, so he took a Greyhound bus back to Winnipeg, heading straight to the hospital. Doctors there noticed he had a pattern of small circular burns on his chest in a grid pattern, and he continued to worsen with headaches, blackouts, and weight loss over the next few days and weeks. Local doctors then sent him to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where experts concluded he was probably suffering radiation poisoning. However, tests for radiation exposure showed negative, so they didn't really know what to think of it, and they sent him home. For the next 32 years, he would never regain his former weight, his blood cell count was dangerously low, and the burns would sometimes reappear for periods of time. He died in 1999 at the age of 83, still thinking it had been some kind of experimental flying vehicle. But other people thought, no, that was a UFO, and that means aliens. An investigation commenced shortly after his story came out. At first, authorities said he probably had been drunk and was hallucinating, which doesn't really happen with alcohol, but anyway. Mounties did find a burned circle of plant life about four and a half meters across in the area McCallick said he'd seen the object, an area where plants still refuse to grow to this day. Plus, there were the burns on his body and subsequent medical problems. The Mounties also found radioactive material in the soil and on his clothing, Later, a vein of radium was discovered in the rock nearby. The Falcon Lake incident has been called Canada's best documented UFO case, and some have gone further saying it's the best case anywhere ever since there are physical signs. Yet, others continue to beat the drunk drum, claiming no, he'd been drunk, and then he had some kind of weird accident, and then he made up this ridiculous story to cover up his embarrassment. But true believers maintain that he had had a physical encounter with an alien spaceship that sprayed him with radioactive exhaust, either accidentally or maybe even on purpose. On December 8, 1978, two hikers were exploring Monte Musine, about 10 kilometers northwest of the city of Turin. 
The mountain has a long history of odd occurrences, ancient stone menhirs, legends of witchcraft and magic caves wherein live wizards or strange creatures, and so on. The hikers saw a blinding light rise above the trees, and one of them went to get a closer look. But then that person, I guess they went around a corner or something, seemed to disappear. The other hikers started searching and then came across another group of hikers, told them what had happened, and those hikers decided to help search for his friend. The hiker was finally found unconscious at first and upon awakening could not tolerate light of any kind. He acted as if he was in some kind of a trance and his heartbeat was highly irregular. He also had an odd kind of scar on his leg that he hadn't had before, almost like a burn. Later, he said he remembered seeing a pear-shaped UFO that grew larger, then four men with heads like melons came out of it. For many weeks afterwards, both he and his companions, who also had seen the light in the sky but not the object of the beings, suffered from conjunctivitis, which is what we call pink eye as kids. Usually this is viral or bacterial, but can result from allergic reactions and exposure to certain chemicals. A cylindrical UFO was seen on the same mountain 18 years later in 1996 by two different hikers who also said they saw large-headed beings inside the craft. Another case of eye damage occurred near Warren, Minnesota on August 27, 1979. Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson was patrolling about 2 o'clock in the morning when a bright light about 8 to 12 inches across, so small, appeared just above the surface of the road. It suddenly rushed at his car and seemed to strike it. He remembers an impact and the sound of shattering glass and everything kind of spinning around before he fell unconscious. When he came to 39 minutes later, the car's windshield was cracked, the emergency light was broken, and the radio antenna was bent. Also, his watch and the clock in the car were both 14 minutes slow, suggesting that they had been stopped for that length of time before starting up again. But the radio was working, so naturally, he called for assistance. He had several bruises and tender spots, and his eyes were irritated, so he went to the hospital. The doctor said the damage to his eyes resembled welder's burns, which are caused by extremely bright light. Interestingly, that very same night in the very same area, a man whose last name was also Johnson, but no relation, also saw a bright light rush at his car, but he shut his eyes and the light sped off, leaving him and his vehicle alone. While many ufologists find the Val Johnson incident to be one of the more significant ones, what with the physical evidence and corroborating second witness, Philip Klass, a well-known skeptic on the whole UFO thing, said he thought it was all a hoax and that Deputy Sheriff Johnson simply wrecked his squad car and then made up a story. Johnson's squad car is on display at the Marshall County Museum, where it's known as the UFO car, and is always a featured attraction at the annual Marshall County Fair. Similar reports continue through the years. Sometimes, however, it's the occupants of the UFOs that cause the trouble. In July 1965, a man in Valençol, France, says he saw two beings near a landed craft, and then one of them pointed a tube at him while they went back to examining various plants, communicating with one another in a kind of grunting language before getting back in their spherical craft and flying off. The paralysis wore off a short time later. Researchers did find indentation marks in the ground where he said this incident took place. 
1973, truck driver Dionisio Yanka was changing a flat tire on the side of the road in Argentina the night of October 27th when a bright light paralyzed him. He then blacked out only to find himself in a rail yard in the city of Bahia Blanca, nine and a half kilometers away, hours later with no memories of what had transpired. In fact, no memories at all, not his name or where he lived or anything. Feeling nauseous, he ended up walking all the way to the municipal hospital. And then his memories once again stop. He came to himself three days later on the 30th, finding his clothing folded away in a drawer next to his hospital bed, but his cigarette lighter, cigarettes, and watch were missing. However, all his money was still in his pants pocket. Doctors said he'd come in that way. Police later found his truck, Jack still in place to change the tire. Slowly, over time, some memories started to come back to him. He said maybe he remembered seeing an object descend from the sky and two beings he thought of as a male and a female get out, and then they gave him some kind of medical examination, and then he woke up in the train yard. Despite all this, he had never been interested in UFOs and the aliens and the like, saying, that does not interest me, when asked. And after the incident, his indifference remained but he was probably a little bit annoyed that those two aliens had stolen his cigarettes, lighter, and watch. On November 8, 1979, forestry worker Bob Taylor was walking with his dog in a clearing in the Deckmont Woods at the base of Deckmont Law, which is a hill near Livingston up in Scotland, just outside of Edinburgh. Suddenly, he saw what he called a, quote, flying dome about six and a half meters, 20, 21 feet across, hovering above the ground. It was dark, seeming metallic, but also rough, like with a sandpapered-like texture, and it had a series of small propellers around its outer rim. Suddenly, a smell, quote, like burning brakes, like car brakes, assailed him, and the small propeller things flew off the craft and grabbed him, dragging him along the ground towards the larger object. He smacked his head several times during this harrowing journey and blacked out. He came to some time later, still in the forest clearing, but with the strange objects gone. However, when he returned to his truck, parked about 500 meters away, it would not start. So he had to walk the mile and a half or so back to Livingston. Needless to say, when he showed up at home, all covered in mud and scrapes with his clothes in tatters, his wife made him call the police. After getting some quick treatment from a doctor, he took the police out to where the incident had occurred. They said they found sort of ladder-shaped marks, as they put it, in the ground, as well as other strange indentations. The police wrote it up as a case of criminal assault by person or persons unknown. The story, known today as the Taylor Incident, but also the Livingston Incident, and also the Deckmont Woods Encounter, started cropping up in UFO circles and soon was being considered one of the most significant, certainly in Scotland, especially since this was the only supposed UFO encounter to date that had actually been recorded as a criminal investigation by police. Plus, there's the doctor's report of his injuries. For many in the UFO community, this one sure seemed like the real deal. Skeptic Stuart Campbell, however, didn't think so, concluding that the weird ladder-like pattern was made by PVC pipes that were being used by the local water authority for a project in the next field over. 
Other explanations have been put forth, including an odd single instance of temporal lobe epilepsy that combined with lingering effects from an earlier bout of meningitis Taylor had suffered, or an attack of epilepsy combined with seeing an atmospheric mirage of Venus, and, as a local businessman put it, a mini-stroke combined with exposure to harmful chemicals that made Taylor think a nearby water tower was a UFO before he started convulsing. These explanations, though, seem almost as far-fetched as the cause having been a UFO. Then there's the Cash Lundrum incident, which took place on December 29, 1980, near New Caney, Texas, northeast of Houston. After eating at a restaurant, Betty Cash was driving home to nearby Dayton, Texas, with her friend Vicki Landrum and Colby, Vicki's seven-year-old grandson. About 9 p.m., they were on a rather isolated road, and they saw a light above some nearby trees. Thinking it was probably from the Houston International Airport, which wasn't that far, they continued on, but then they saw it again further down the road, brighter and closer. It seemed shaped like a diamond with flattened ends, about the size of a water tower, with a ring of small blue lights around its middle, sort of silver and metallic looking, but also glowing brightly, hovering above the trees and with what looked like flames coming out of its base. Now, Vicky was a born-again Christian and thought this was certainly the second coming and, in fact, might even be Jesus himself returned at last. She was excited by the strange vision, while Betty was a bit more stunned and a little fearful. They got out to look at it better, but young Colby was having a real hard time processing what he was seeing, kind of freaking out in the car, so Vicky went back inside to calm him down, while Betty Cash stayed outside. The flames would flare up underneath the diamond, then it would rise up a few feet, then it would sink back down, then more flames would shoot out of the bottom, making it go up again. Each time there was a flare-up, there would be an intense blast of heat in the air, even heating up the metal of the car so that it was painful to touch. When Betty Cash went back inside the vehicle, she had to use her coat just to touch the door handle. It was getting so hot outside, it was heating up the inside of the car, and the vinyl dashboard had started to soften. Cash touched it and left an imprint of her hand in it that lingered for several weeks afterwards. Suddenly, there was a larger burst of flame, and the diamond lifted up higher and finally went off into the sky. Suddenly, a group of 23 helicopters flying in formation appeared, at least some of them tandem rotor Boeing CH-47 Chinooks painted black. The diamond thing flew off, and the helicopters chased it in pursuit. The entire incident had lasted about 20 minutes, and then they all went home. That night, however, all three of them felt unwell. Weakness, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, burning eyes, and a feeling almost like a really bad sunburn. Over the next few days, Betty Cash also developed blisters on her skin, became so weak she could not walk, and started losing large patches of both skin and hair. She stayed in the hospital for 12 days, then was released, but then got even worse, so she had to go back in for another 15 days. Later, she developed breast cancer. Vicky and Colby also lost some hair and had some skin sores, and later, Vicky got very bad cataracts, but Betty Cash seemed to get the worst of it. After all, she'd been outside the car the longest for almost all of those strange 20 minutes. A radiologist would eventually say it looked like all three had encountered high-energy ionizing radiation and maybe also some lower-energy infrared exposure as well. 
Another medical professional, however, said that if that were true, they would have died within a few days at that dosage level. More likely, they'd probably been exposed to some sort of a chemical, maybe in the air somehow. While no one else saw the flaming diamond object, a police officer over in Dayton did see 12 Chinook-style helicopters in the same area Cash and Landrum reported them around the same time, and so did his wife. Cash and the two Landrums continued to have medical problems, and well, the U.S. doesn't really have universal health care, so hospital bills were piling up. So they contacted their senators, who told them they should file a complaint with the local Air Force base. The Air Force base told them they should get a lawyer. Attorney Peter Gersten took on the case in which the plaintiffs asked the government for $20 million in compensation for their injuries. After all, those helicopters weren't chasing a phantom or a mirage, and so somebody, somewhere, knows something. The case dragged on until 1986 when a judge ruled that the helicopters had not been shown to be the cause of their problems, and since the Air Force said that they didn't have any flaming diamond-shaped aircraft, whatever had caused their injuries was hardly the responsibility of the U.S. government or military. Accordingly, the case was dismissed. So, were the three of them exposed to radiation which caused their medical problems? Believers think so. Others are not so sure. Skeptic Philip Class, mentioned earlier in the Val Johnson story, notes that no radiation was found around Betty Cash's car, and prior to NASA aerospace engineer John Schusler's brief investigation in cooperation with MUFON into the event, there was no medical history of either woman available. A British ufologist made a similar note saying that knowing if either woman had had medical issues prior to this supposed encounter would be fundamental in determining their veracity. Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast found that Cash's own doctor thought her losing hair was due to what's called spot baldness, which is an autoimmune disease. He also notes that Vicki Landrum did indeed develop cataracts, but in only one eye. Betty Cash died in 1998, age 69, having appeared on several television programs like Unsolved Mysteries and America Undercover. Vicki Landrum lived to age 83, dying in 2007, after also appearing on TV on That's Incredible, UFO Cover-Up Live, and Unsolved Mysteries. Young Colby Landrum, who is now approaching 50, has appeared on Ancient Aliens and UFO Hunters Alien Fallout. And yes, they probably all got paid a bit for those television appearances, but certainly not enough to cover all those medical bills. These preceding stories have been of just one or a couple of people claiming injuries. But what about when a whole bunch of people say that something bad happened to them over a fairly long period of time? Let's take a look at the Colares UFO flap, which kicked off Brazil's own version of Project Blue Book. The small town of Colares, today around 12,000 people, is up in the north of Brazil on the coast of Baia do Marajo or Marajo Bay, which is sometimes called the Marajoia Gulf and also the Amazon Gulf, because the whole area is surrounded by the Amazon jungle. It's inhabited mainly by indigenous people from the Amazon and their descendants. In mid-1977, UFOs were seen repeatedly in the area around Colares, but also near Belay and Sao Luis, and even as far west as Santarai and Manaus. But pretty soon, some pretty disturbing reports were coming out of Colares about people being attacked by UFOs. 
There were several kinds of UFOs, all different sizes and colors, many saucer-shaped, but not all, like one looked like a boomerang, for example. Some witnesses said they could see small beings piloting these UFOs, beings about three or four feet tall, that's about a meter, and who look a lot like what UFO people call the greys, you know, the kind of classic alien. And people in the town said that they shot beams of light at anyone who looked at them. These beams, bright white and about seven or eight centimeters across, about two and a half to three inches, punctured the skin and created a burning-like sensation, like a cigarette burn, and sometimes also caused lesions. These beings struck people in the face, and if they turned and ran, in the upper back. Sometimes the beams were brighter, and the victim then said it was like having a heavy weight pressed on your chest. Other times, the light seemed to paralyze the people struck, and then red, blue, and yellow beams were also reported at different times with different effects. While some people had burn marks, others had small punctures in their skin and reported feeling weak afterwards. And some of those people started to lose their hair and said that the skin around their wounds turned black. Doctors who examined these people found them to be suffering from loss of blood. The locals started calling the saucers Chupa Chupa, which means sucker sucker, probably a reference to this weird, almost vampiric activity. The attacks became so frequent, people started hiding indoors, only venturing out when spotters would give the all clear. They kept the nasty little buggers away using fires kept burning all day and night and by shooting off fireworks. Finally, in October, the mayor asked the Brazilian Air Force to please send in somebody to take a look into this. While the Brazilians have been sort of discreetly looking into UFO reports since 1954, they codenamed UFO reports, quote, H-Traffic, these events prompted them to start Operação Prato, which directly translates into Operation Plate, but Operation Saucer is probably more in keeping with what they intended. Operation Saucer lasted from October 20th until December 5th. Air Force investigators swarmed all over the small town and they saw plenty. Many of them saw UFOs and over 500 photographs and more than 16 hours of film footage were shot by military personnel. Some of them also saw the alien-looking pilots and a few of them were even attacked. Many UFOs were also observed diving in and out of the sea out near the beach. Some investigators guessed that maybe there was an underwater UFO base there. Several of the investigators would suffer PTSD as a result of their experiences there at the edge of the Amazon jungle. At least one Air Force captain hanged himself with his own bathrobe tie 20 years later, just after giving an interview about his experiences. Writer Daniel Rabiso Giesi, in his book Extraterrestrial Vampires of the Amazon, said that quite a few of the Air Force folks even went insane. The final report for Operation Saucer was more than 2,000 pages long. Most of it was never released, but some items have come to light in recent years. See the episode notes for a link to some extracts. Over the years, the weird events in 1977 have become catnip to some UFO folks, with Jacques Vallée claiming that some people had actually died as a result of their injuries, and other people saying as many as 400 people had had blood taken from them using these narrow beams of light. In addition to unexplained blood loss, doctors found the injuries resembled radiation burns, and possibly, specifically, microwave. But what's for sure is that the people of Calaris were terrorized for months by, let's call them, racist vampire aliens, or something at any rate. And while this is the only recorded instance of something like this happening, a long-drawn-out concerted series of attacks, 
Who's to say that it couldn't happen again? It's not it's you, not you. It's, me. it's me. Keep in mind that sometimes when there's trouble with UFOs or alleged visitors, we're the ones who started, or at least try to. Sometimes we are the jerks. On June 26, 1971, Benny Schmidt, who owned a farm near Fort Beaufort, about 150 kilometers northwest of East London in South Africa, was told by one of his workers that there was a strange ball of fire about two and a half feet across, 76 centimeters, slowly moving over the trees. So he went and got a rifle, and when he got near it, he fired at it eight times. Since he was a pretty good shot, he hit it all or most of those times, and yet there seemed to be no damage. The glowing ball instead seemed to retreat and sort of almost hide in the trees. The police were called, and upon arriving and seeing the unusual object themselves, they also fired their weapons at it. It changed color a few times, and sometimes its glow disappeared, revealing it to be a gray, barrel-shaped object. Schmidt got even closer and fired off a couple more rounds from a distance of only 12 meters. The object then flew off, crashing through the thick woods, breaking trees and branches along the way. Later, three sets of what looked like landing pad imprints were found pressed into the clay-rich soil. The magazine New Scientist joked that since South Africa was, quote, very fastidious about the sort of immigrants she welcomes, little green men may very well have been on the prohibited list. Early in the morning on April 11, 1980, Peru's La Jolla Air Force Base was preparing for some exercises and equipment tests. A strange silver object was spotted floating about 600 meters above the ground, it's about 1,900 feet, about five kilometers from the airfield. Air Force Lieutenant Oscar Santa Maria Huerta was scrambled to go take a look at it in his Russian-made fighter bomber. It looked kind of like a balloon, though more shaped, he thought, like a light bulb. Most observers thought it was, in fact, a balloon, maybe one with surveillance equipment, since this airbase in Peru was one of the few to actually use Soviet aircraft. The object did not respond to communication attempts, and it was in restricted airspace, so, as Huerta would later say, quote, it had to come down. He started an attack run firing 64 30-millimeter shells in a, quote, wall of fire pattern that would usually destroy anything that got in the way. Keeping in mind, just one of those shells would completely blow up a car, and he fired 64 of them. Huerta is convinced that he actually directly struck the object with at least a few of the shells, but it just seemed to kind of absorb them. It then shot upwards at very high speed. Huerta gave chase for 84 kilometers until it suddenly stopped, once again floating. So he set up for another attack run from below. There's a city below them, and he didn't want to stray around to cause problems on the ground. But before he could pull the trigger, it once again shot up out of the line of fire. This repeated two or three more times, so he adjusted his altitude to attack from above so it couldn't pull the same trick again. But as he climbed, it climbed up along with him, keeping to the same altitude as him until eventually he hit his aircraft maximum ceiling. Running low on fuel, he knew he'd have to break off contact, so he flew closer to at least get a good look at it before returning to base. From a distance of only about 100 meters, he said it was shaped more like a cream-colored light bulb cut in half than in any kind of a balloon. It had no wings, no exhausts, no windows, no visible propulsion system, nothing familiar. He then knew that this was not some kind of spying aircraft, but something else entirely. He went back to base, but the object sat in the same spot for another two hours, where it was seen by pretty much everyone 
at the base. Huerta later said that his equipment probably couldn't be jammed by the craft, as had been reported in so many other instances, because all that equipment was mechanical and not electrical. Otherwise, he never would have been able to fire any shells at it at all. The Arequipa UFO incident, as it's known, remains the only one where a pilot fired at and struck a UFO. Fortunately, in the skies over Peru in 1980, the UFO did not respond and shoot back at Huerta. But sometimes the UFOs do fight back. In May 1951, during the Korean War, some GIs near Chowong, up what's near now the border between North and South Korea, saw what they described as a glowing orange jack-o'-lantern coming down from the hills into the village, just as an artillery barrage was being started from there. This glowing object drifted right into the artillery fire but suffered no damage. Its light then turned green, so they fired at it with their M1 rifles. As the armor-piercing rounds hit the object, the soldiers swore they heard metallic pangs and the thing started weaving back and forth with its lights flashing on and off. Then a new light, almost like a searchlight or what you see in a lighthouse, started sweeping around the object in pulses. When this light struck the soldiers, they felt a burning sensation. So they ran off into a nearby bunker and the object shot off into the sky. Those affected by the beam began to sicken, and three days later they were all evacuated, some on trucks because they were too weak to walk. They were all found to have highly elevated white blood cell counts, which some experts think was a sign of radiation sickness. Conventional explanations have included experimental Soviet weaponry and possibly severe dysentery, which can also cause an increase in white blood cells as well as hallucinations. And then there's the Blue House UFO incident that happened over Seoul, South Korea on October 14, 1976. A dozen or so bright lights were seen moving in a regular pattern in the night skies over the capital, approaching the Changhua Day, or Blue House, which was both the office and residence of the president of South Korea. Fearing some kind of North Korean attack, and coming as it did just two months after the August 1976 crisis that really almost led to nuclear war, the Army fired anti-aircraft guns at the lights. Lots of anti-aircraft guns. Literally thousands of ammunition rounds. Unfortunately, the targets were right over the city, which had about 7 million people in it in 1976. Hot anti-aircraft rounds started falling out of the sky, raining down upon the inhabitants of Seoul. The lights, whatever they were, were unaffected by the guns. Sometime later, an official story of sorts was put out that it had been an American freight plane that had strayed into a no-fly zone, but literally thousands of people saw not one set of lights, but as many as 12. It's hard to say exactly how many people were injured by the anti-aircraft ammunition since the entire incident was pretty much covered up for decades, but estimates run to the hundreds at least. It's also a rather common practice in South Korea for governments leaving power after an election to remove records so they can cover up any endemic corruption that occurred on their watch, which makes finding exact details even more difficult. But there are plenty of people who are still alive who saw those lights, and even some who still bear the scars those anti-aircraft rounds gave them.
So UFOs could be a hazard in the air or even sometimes on the road or unintentionally dangerous just because they're too hot and or radioactive. Beings inside them might not be so friendly when interrupted working on their craft or examining plants, but, but generally the fear here is that of the unknown and perhaps the unknowable, which the military would certainly see as a threat. It should be noted that there are almost no incidents in which UFOs actually attack anyone, even when they themselves are fired upon. And sometimes, in our zeal to get the enemy, we end up injuring our own people. Of course, there's that outlier in Brazil with the racist vampire UFOs, not to minimize what the people of Cararas went through, but that does rather seem to be a one-off event. So, possible threat. Yeah, possible. And there are other things that UFOs do that further concern the military. But we'll have to look at those in a future episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Thank you for visiting the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.